Father, as the disciples did, we wish to sit at your feet and learn from you. We pray that we could glean something today from your word that will assist us in our walks, whether it's being sanctified, set apart, whether it's how to communicate the gospel, or whether it's just being a faithful servant of yours, all of those things. May we glean from your word how to better accomplish these goals. And we know these goals you have set up for us. And may we have the assistance of your Holy Spirit in all things. We know you desire to do so, Lord. But we ask that you would help us to subdue the flesh in the pursuit of these holy endeavors. So as we go through your word, we ask that you would bless it. Fill our hearts full of it, Lord. And may we give you the honor and glory by living our lives according to your will. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, in chapters 17 and 18, Paul visits eight different cities. He covers hundreds of miles. He goes to Thessalonica, Berea, Athens, Corinth, uh, Sincrea, Ephesus, Caesarea, and Antioch. And it was his habit to go into the synagogue. Whatever city he went to, he went to the synagogue. If there was not a uh, synagogue... He would go down to the place of prayer, wherever that might be, that Jews might gather together if there were not enough Jews to form a synagogue in that city. Now, he would encounter his fiercest opposition from those inside the synagogues, the Jews who refused to believe in Jesus as Messiah. Paul would go in there. He would give the gospel, explain to them from the Old Testament, give the history how the Messiah was to come, how he is to be crucified, resurrected from the dead, ascending to heaven, and then coming back again one day. But they didn't want to hear that. All they wanted to hear was keep the law, be circumcised, eat the right foods, remember the holy days, the Sabbaths, all of those things. And when Paul came and gave this new message or the the extended version of the Old Testament covenant, which was fulfilled in the New Testament, they didn't like it. And so when Paul was in Thessalonica, there were some Jews there that really hated him because they were jealous of him because he was having such a a tremendous impact in giving the gospel. And so what these Jews did is they rounded up some ruffians who were out there, guys of ill repute, guys who would not hesitate at all to hurt somebody or to just gin up a crowd to be against Paul, and that's what they did. And it resulted in a riot in Thessalonica. And he went, or they went, this group of people, went to the house of Jason, which we will see. And Jason, apparently, according to Romans, I believe it's chapter 16, Jason was a relative of Paul, and that's how we make the connection there. And what they did is they didn't find Paul and his companions, so they drugged Jason out of the house and they took him to the authorities and they were fined. They had to uh, pay an amount of money and they let them go back, but they made this plan. And since the Jews tried to really muzzle Paul in his preaching during that same night, Paul was sent to Berea so that he might continue to preach the gospel. But the Jews found out about it and they followed him. Boy, that is just tremendous hate and disdain. So we got to find this guy and we got to stop this guy from giving the gospel to people and preaching about this Jesus. And of course, Paul wasn't going to stop any of that. And when they followed him to Berea, well, he ended up going on to Athens, but he left Silas and Timothy behind to stay in Berea. Now we know 
that he ended up in Ephesus as well. And that's where Timothy, who was with Silas back in Berea, eventually became the pastor. He was a young man. He became the pastor there. And, of course, we have First and Second Timothy that record what Paul said to Timothy to encourage him in his ministry. Now, once he got to Athens, he, en- he encountered the Epicurean and the Stoic philosophers. And I'll talk about those guys in a minute. And what they would like to do is they'd like to sit, ar- sit around all day in the Areopagus and discuss the latest philosophies of the day. Now, the Areopagus was also something that you could belong to. Now, they would say, go to the Areopagus, and they'd meet in a particular place. And normally, if you entered the city and you wanted to have discussion with somebody, you would go to the meeting place. And the meeting place for them was Mars Hill. Now, Mars Hill was this outcrop of rock in the city of Athens, and we have a picture of that for you. And there it is. And, And so they would go up on top of this rock, and people would just talk about the philosophies that they had. They would, they would say, well, what about God? And what about the universe? And what about philosophy? And they would sit on this uneven surface and they would listen to people. Kind of like a mini amphitheater. Everybody would sit on the rocks and somebody would stand up and they would speak. Now, when Paul got to the Areopagus, so to speak, like I said, it was something that you could belong to. It was like a club that you could belong to. Kind of like the Elks or Albar Temple, that type of thing. You could belong to the Areopagus. And the Areopagus, some of the members would go up here on Mars Hill. But some of them would actually go to a building. And in this building is probably where they brought Paul to sit down and meet. I want to show you the building. It's the next picture here. This is the building that Paul probably went into as everybody who was a member of the Areopagus would kind of sit around and they would listen. They would have a, an enclosed environment to where it wouldn't be exposed to the elements. And so this is probably where Paul made his case for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, as Paul would go to these cities, he would try to make a connection with the people in the cities. He would go to the synagogues because he was a Jew. He had that in common. If you've ever traveled, uh, sometimes, a lot of times when we travel, uh, Patty and I will go to a church and we'll sit down if we can find a church and we'll sit down and we'll listen to the message. Now, we haven't done that in the past few trips, but we used to do that quite a bit. And and it would be like, okay, that's nice. And we felt comfortable there. I can remember when Patty and I, we were on our honeymoon. And when we were on our honeymoon, we drove from here to uh, Monterey, California. We did Highway 1 all the way up. And when we got to San Francisco, there was a Christian bookstore that was up there. And we decided we're going to go into the Christian bookstore. And when we got into the Christian bookstore, for some reason, it just, for me, it felt like home. It's like we were out in the world and we came to a place that felt like home. We had a connection with that Christian bookstore. Now, Christian bookstores are disappearing because you can get everything you want on Amazon and no longer can you go to a particular Bible bookstore. At least I don't know of any in the area right now. But we can become informed and we can have that connection with the people that we go to a bookstore with, a Christian bookstore or a church of some kind. And you immediately feel the connection of the spirit when you go there. If you're a believer, you feel it. So Paul would do that. Now, 
of course, he ran into opposition in all these synagogues, and these Jews kept on following him and opposing him at every single turn. And at one point, as we'll get to in the message, he just said, all right, enough. I'm going to stop going to you guys, the Jews, even though I'm a Jew, and I'm going to go to the Gentile because you guys weren't having it. Fine. So he just turns around and he says, I'm out of here. And so he went to the Greeks. He went to the pagans. Henceforth, he goes to Athens. He goes up on Mars Hill there. Now, Mars Hill, the reason it's named Mars Hill is because according to the Greek gods, which Zeus was the head of, and then there was Mars. Mars was accused of raping some other god, and and therefore a trial was brought, and Poseidon was there, and, and they were trying to convict Mars of this rape, and of course it failed. It didn't go the way that Poseidon thought it would go, and it was where Mars was tried. The gods came down, and they came upon this hill, and so it's called Mars Hill. That's why it has that particular name, and it's all based on these Greek gods. Now we're going to pick it up in chapter 17 in verse 1. We made it through verse 3 here last week, but we'll just pick it up in verse 1 to get context. It says, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica where there was a Jewish synagogue. As his custom was, Paul went into the synagogue and on three Sabbath days or three weeks, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that the Christ had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Christ, he said. Now, he went through these. The reason is to think logically. He gave an explanation or he gave detail. He made things clear. He made them more lucid for the people to understand. He gave evidence. He went to the Old Testament. And in, and for the Jew, he would go to the Old Testament. But for the Greek, he would use some things from their culture, as we will see. And then he proclaimed or preached Jesus Christ and him crucified, that Jesus commands everyone to repent and be saved. And that means everyone. That's why Paul went to the Jews and to the Greeks. Now, this would require some skill in order to do this. And that's when I encouraged you last week, develop that skill. Develop the skill to where you can go and talk to somebody, where you can just open up a conversation about God. Remember, everybody likes to talk about God if given the, uh, the chance to do so. And it says here, the result was, in verse 4, some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and not a few prominent women. So God-fearers are those who were not Jews yet believed in the Jewish God. And they would go to these synagogues. They may or may not be circumcised following the entire law, but they believed in God and they were accepted in the synagogue. Verse 5, but the Jews were jealous... So they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace, formed a mob, and started a riot in the city. They rushed to Jason's house in search of Paul and Silas in order to bring them out to the crowd. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some other brothers before the city officials, shouting, These men who have caused trouble all over the world have now come here. Now that's an embellishment there, but that's commonly what happens. If you do something for the Lord, it has a tendency by those who hate it to be embellished. You know, if you say, 
uh, there is a God that we must worship back in this time of Paul. Well, they would say, but there's only one God and he is Caesar and you're causing a problem and everybody's just going haywire, their hair's on fire and you need to stop speaking like this. And so they'd bring these accusations, just gin up these accusations. And verse 7 says, and Jason welcomed them into his house and they are all defying Caesar's decree saying that there is a king, one called Jesus or another king, one called Jesus. When they heard this, the crowd and the city officials were thrown into turmoil. Turmoil is hostility, anger, slander. They are agitated. It's like rolling water back and forth. And, and you can imagine a raging sea. And that everybody's just up in arms, throwing up their arms in the air, just yelling back and forth. And they probably wanted to do something to Jason. But he wasn't at the heart of the problem. It was Paul. So... Then they made Jason and others post bond and they let them go. Verse 10, as soon as it was night, the brothers sent Paul and Silas away to Berea to get him out of there so he can keep on preaching the gospel so that no harm would come to him. On arriving there, they went to the Jewish synagogue. So these are the things that are in common again that they have. They can go there. They understand the Jewish religion and the race. And that's why they went to the synagogue. They didn't go anywhere else. Now, going on here. What did Paul teach the Jews when he'd show up? Now, if somebody was a traveling rabbi and they went to a synagogue, they would have a scripture reading. They'd bring out a scroll and they'd open the scroll and they wouldn't touch it. They would use this little thing that had a hand like a pointer on it and they would read through it. And then when that was done, if somebody was there that was a visiting rabbi or authority in the Jewish synagogue or with the Jews, they would have them speak and give a word of encouragement. And so they did this with Jesus when he proclaimed his ministry in Capernaum. They did this with Paul when he showed up. And he probably started out somewhere in the book of Genesis. Probably just making that connection with him. Like God created the heavens and the earth and out of one man he made all of humanity. Something along that line. Now he used some of that with the Greeks as well. He could have started with the garden going back to Adam and Eve and there was Satan there or the serpent and the serpent caused Adam and Eve to fall. But he would have said something maybe along the line of verse 15 of Genesis chapter 3. It says, and I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers and he will crush your head and you will strike his heel referring to Satan or the serpent. In other words, he's talking about the fall. Adam and Eve were perfect then they fell. As a result of the fall, he provided a way of atonement, which would have been Passover. So he probably talked about Passover and the sacrificial lamb and how the blood had to be on the doorpost and the lintel. And the angel of death would cover that. Being a Jew, you'd say, oh yes, this is very true. This is what the scripture has to say. But then he bumped it over to Jesus. But I want to tell you who the true Lamb of God is. The true Lamb of God is the one who takes away the sin of the world and by His blood we can be cleansed of our sins. So He would make a jump to focus on Jesus Christ and then the fact that He rose from the dead that He would not see decay. I could see Him completely doing this in Psalm chapter 16 in verse 10, it actually says that. It says, because you will not abandon me to the grave, you will not let your Holy One see decay. And how Jesus would have been preached by Paul as one ascending into heaven and we're supposed to wait for his second coming. 
And then he would go on to say, and it is for you to believe in this Messiah. And he would give them the opportunity to believe. Like Romans 10, 9, and 10. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And with your heart that you believe and are justified and with your mouth that you confess and are saved. He would have done something like that to bring the gospel. All of them there would have been attentive. They would have wanted to know what God has to say in his Bible and is he doing anything new? Because after all, God had been silent for over 400 years. Nothing had really transpired or taken place. The prophets, if there were prophets, were not recorded in the scripture, but something new was happening. So people would have wanted to hear that. The Jews specifically would have wanted to hear that. Now in verse 11... It says, now the Bereans were of more noble character than the Thessalonians, for they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. In other words, they were fact checkers. You need to be a fact checker with what I say. You need to be able to say, oh, yeah, there it is in scripture. He's got it right this time, you know, and he's, he's talking the way scripture says. But if somebody else says something and it just doesn't set right with you, there's one question you need to ask them. And you need to have that. I've taught this ever since I've been in ministry, whether it's in Bible study or preaching from the pulpit or teaching in any kind of capacity. If somebody comes up with a doctrine, something that you just... This just is not right in your heart. You don't have to say that to them. This just is not right. You don't have to say that to them. But you, you know in your heart, it just seems a little off. You say, where is that in scripture? That's all you need to ask. Where is that in scripture? Most of the time when you get these weird doctrines and teachings, they can't point to a scripture. They can't go there. I, I was listening to um, Jack Hibbs and Eric McTaxis, and they were talking about Christians and the government and all of that. And they and Jack Hibbs went to Washington D.C. and they had a tour guide there. And the tour guide went. They took him to where the Constitution was. I'm, I've been there. I've seen the Constitution's glass case. It's right there. And this tour guide was explaining what that was all about. And so Jack turned to the tour guide and said, excuse me, can you tell me where in the Constitution it says, it talks about separation of church and state? And the tour guide immediately said, it's in the First Amendment. And so Jack said, can we read the First Amendment? And it's not there. It was written by Thomas Jefferson. It was not in the Constitution. But there's this belief today that there's the separation of church and state. And when Thomas Jefferson wrote that, He wanted to make sure that the state could not infect the church. It wasn't that the church could not infect the state. That's what it was purposed for. But our culture has turned that around. No, the church is not supposed to have any kind of influence in the state. That is a lie. That is from the pit. But the point was, he thought it was in the Constitution. Just like people with aberrant doctrines, they think it's in the scriptures, but they're forcing things into the scripture. It's like taking a round hole and taking a square peg, trying to put that square peg. And if you hit it hard enough, it's going to go in there. If you hit it hard enough, that's what people do with these doctrines. So all you have to ask is, you know, 
I'm kind of confused about that. Where does it say that in Scripture? That we're supposed to do that or that's what Jesus taught. And so that's what you're supposed to ask when you are presented with that kind of condition. And that's what the Bereans were doing. And they were more noble than the Thessalonians because they were eager to get the word. And when they got the word, Paul said that. Where does it say that in the Old Testament? And they, they wouldn't call it the Old Testament. They would say the law. Where is that in the law? And so they'd go back. Oh, there it is right there. It happens to say that. There. He would not see decay right there in the Psalms. So that's how Paul's environment was taking place, rolling along. And then the Jews that heard that, they just didn't want to listen. They said, no, that's it. You're wrong. Just get out of here. We don't like you. And it would turn into an ad hominem attack, that he's an evil man stirring up dissension inside the city. Now, you can count on that happening if you ever open up your mouth inside the culture. Paul set the example for us on how to handle this. Now, this last week and the week before, we were making a transition in the youth. Some of the youth have been with us for four years, and they're heading off to college. Two of them are heading off to college. One's heading off to the military. And I thought a couple of weeks ago, how would I encourage them now that they've been here for three or four years and they're flying the coop? What would you tell them? What would be your final words to them? Knowing that you're just throwing them to the wolves. And, and I've told them that. Like the one who is going into the Air Force. The Air Force happens to be the most anti-Christian branch of the military. The things that they're asking the uh, Christians to do and not do. And the recruiter even asked this particular young woman about her faith, the Christian. She said, I'm a Christian. And he tried to dampen the fact that she might speak out about that. Like, you might not want to do that. And she goes, well, I'm doing it anyhow. You know, no big deal. And, And she knows. And she's solid in the Lord and in the Word. And one of her main concerns was when she was uh, asking the recruiter different things, she wanted to know, would she be in the position where she had to room with somebody who was transgender? Because that's going through the military. There's actually an Air Force, I want to call it a um, picture, where they have the gay pride colors going across, and it has the Air Force symbol, and then you have somebody saluting the pride flag which is illegal you're not supposed to do that in the military and so the air force is going in that direction so what would you tell someone like her as she's going away the other two they're they're going off to college and and some others you know they've already flown the coop so to speak they're going out and so I I gave that some thought what I should tell them and they, they had come up to me after uh, the study this last week and they had a couple of versions of the Bible that they got for free. They sent away for them. They got these versions of the Bible and they came up to me and said, can you look at these? Are these okay versions? As long as it's not the New World Translation or the Message or if it's not the Passion Translation, I said, you can probably thumb through them and they're going to be okay because there's so many translations out there now the new century translation the niv the nasb the i mean just all of them you want to use all of them to kind of get the idea of what's being said in there unless you have a bad translation then you just throw that one out but they were okay they were good i, I kind of opened up to a few sections and in it was all right and then they handed me some books 
and they said, could you tell us about the authors here? You know, what do you think about the authors? Because I've always told them, as I have mentioned in here, if you're going to read a book, a book that is not the Bible, you want to know who the author is. You find that out before you do anything else. If you had a book and it said, How to Live a Successful Life, and the author was Anton LaVey. If you know who Anton LaVey is, you'd say, well, you probably should not listen to what or read what he has to say. It's probably going to be off just a little bit. So they handed me these books. And one was by Pastor Rick Warren. And I, I looked at it and they said, what about Rick Warren? And, of course, Rick Warren has, uh, I think it's Willow Creek. I, I think that's his church. Very successful uh, pastor. I, I remember really being exposed to him when Obama became president because he was the one that said the prayer for President Obama. And I got a chance to listen to him speak for three hours straight on Hugh Hewitt's radio program. Hugh Hewitt had him on. And he said, okay, what are you going to do when you pray for Obama? Have you talked to Obama? And, and everything he had to say for three hours was right on. I was just going, that's, that's good. You know, everything he's saying. But, you know, he just retired. And when he retired, he ordained three women as pastors on his last message. And he has recently come out. You can look it up on the Internet. Uh, it's all over the Internet where he is apologizing Two women for not allowing them to be pastors. He has changed his mind. There are two views on that, the complementarian view and the egalitarian view, that women are exactly the same as men and they can fulfill that as well. Even though scripture says, I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority over man or be teaching elders inside the church, that type of thing. It's not that they're any less than men. It's just that men and women have their particular roles that they are built for. Just like women are meant to have babies, not men. You know, it's like they're built for that. Women are nurturers, not men. You know, men will say, suck it up, buttercup, you know, and and they'll they'll just say, move on with your life and stop your crying, that type of thing. And a woman will just brood or be a helicopter mom all over the children, you know, that type of thing. And that's okay because that's, that's how they're built. That's how they're made. Same thing inside the church. We are built and we are made for particular tasks because of who we are by nature. Now, Rick Warren is coming out and saying, no, I'm sorry I ever did that. And here's three women and ordained them. And so I cautioned them. I said, everything he had to write previous, I, th- I think it was mostly okay. There was sometimes a lack of preaching the cross as well as the good news, the bad news with the good news. Sometimes it was just like, God has a wonderful plan for your life. Nothing to do with sin. And that's where the seeker-friendly churches come in. And people will flock to those churches because they don't want to hear about their own sin, their own failing, but God has a remedy for that. And that's the good news. He can change all of that around. And so Rick Warren, in some of his messages, that's what he would preach. Or uh, what is that, 40 Days of Purpose? I was in Hawaii when I was exposed to that. And so I said, how about 40 days of porpoise instead of 40 days of purpose? And, and so we joked about that a little bit, but that just deals with this life, how to have a wonderful life here, rather than what does Jesus want me to do with my life? And that should be the focus. Everything else works itself out. And so I, I said, 
most everything I've ever heard from him is pretty good. I don't agree with the women in the pastorship or elders inside the church. And I said, but that's where he is. He has the egalitarian view of women inside the church now. And I think that that is an error. So I just cautioned them about the authors. But I digress. What would you tell them? Now, this is the Bereans. The Bereans are looking at... Paul's telling us this stuff, and he's going to be leaving here in just a few days, maybe a couple of weeks, and he's going to leave us with this information. What's he going to leave us with? What would Paul give to them? And what would you give to youth that are heading out? Well, some of the things I let them know, I gave them some encouragements and some admonitions. I told them that they would be heading off into the world And I think that they understand the world. I I try to keep them abreast of what is going on in our culture, just like I try to keep you up to snuff. And by the way, just as a side note, a parenthetical thought, sometimes I'll talk about politics and the culture and transgenderism and homosexuality and abortion and all of those things. That's in our culture. If all we ever talked about was the scripture and how we're supposed to use the scripture only inside the church setting, we wouldn't be very effective. God wants us to go outside the walls of the church and be effective in communicating the gospel to those outside the walls. That's why I'll bring up some of those subjects. Now, sometimes when I bring up those subjects, I can see it. The eyes roll, oh, here he goes again. You know, he's gonna talk about that stuff again. It's because we have to take our faith and put it into the culture. If I never talked about the culture, we wouldn't know how to do that. Let me ask you the question. If given the opportunity, would you speak against transgenderism? Or would you speak for it? Or would you be silent? And what do you think Jesus would have you do? Now, I consider this a moral subject. For instance, did John the Baptist speak against Herod that he had his brother's wife Herod Agrippa yes he did was Herod Agrippa in the synagogue no he wasn't was he in the government yes he was you know when uh, to give an example of that when Bill Clinton was president he was the first president that was allowed to have indiscretions and become president Ever since then, private lives are private. You're not allowed to talk about them in any way. And that's what the church has a habit of doing. Like, for instance, in, and I know I'm going off a little bit of a tangent here, but I want to make sure you guys understand this. When Eric Metaxas was talking, he had written a book, and it dealt with Dietrich Bonhoeffer. If you're familiar with him, he was one that left Germany He was in the church and he went back to Germany and they killed him because he spoke against Hitler and the Third Reich. He he just said, this is wrong, this is immoral, we need to stop this. And they killed him for it. But the church in general in Germany stopped talking. They just said, we're just going to stay inside of our four walls and we're going to let our church experience stay there instead of taking it outside and speaking out. So would you speak against transgenderism? Would you speak against homosexuality? In doing so, are you speaking where it condemns them? Or are you speaking in terms that there's a way out 
And God wants us to take that way out. He loves you so much that he died to save you from this. And this is called sin. But the world says, no, this is no longer sin. Now, I'm going to keep on going on this tangent here. Just bear with me. Have you noticed um, Target, Kohl's, Disney, and Anheuser-Busch? Some big impacts have been happening with that in our culture. There are a few people that are speaking out, but most people have been walking with their feet away from these corporations. They have lost literally billions of dollars because of the transgenderism, the LGBTQ plus whatever other letters are in there. They're walking away from it. They're, they're walking away from the money. But yet they're doubling down. They're saying, no, we can continue to do this and you're going to like it is what they're really communicating to everyone. And you need to be quiet about the queer theory which is out there, the transgenderism, the the genderism, the homosexuality, the abortion, all of these cultural things that are going on. They're telling the Christians, you need to be silent. Now, why would they do that when they're losing billions of dollars? Bud Light, they just sold that division off. They fired the person that did that, that came up with the Dylan Mulvaney ad. If you're familiar with what's going on in the culture, I think you would know what I'm talking about. And they decided, okay, we're going to sell that off, but we're just going to continue in the same way. They're still having gay recognition stuff. The Dodgers in L.A. Stadium, I don't know if you saw that. The ladies of perpetual whatever, they mock the Catholic nuns which are up there. And you see what's going on in a culture, and they're losing their shirts, so to speak. Target, down $13 billion dollars. And all they did was move the stuff to the back of the store. They didn't get rid of it. Now, why are they doing that? Well, have you guys heard of BlackRock and Vanguard? These are two multi-trillion dollar companies. And what they're doing, they're coming in and telling these people, these large corporations, that if you want to survive... If you want loans coming from the Federal Reserve, you're going to have an ESG score. You're going to have a DEI score. And that score is going to determine whether or not you're liberal enough, if you're leftist enough. And if you are, we will give you loans and we'll cover your losses. And this is coming down from the government and trickling down to the corporations. And so they're being bailed out at the same time. This is all over the news how this is taking place. The government is against Christianity. Who would ever thought in the United States that those people who are in power would be against Christ and the Christians in the church? But that's what's happening. Are you willing to speak out about those things? Just like John the Baptist did? Just like Paul the Apostle did? It is our job to continue in that same vein. What might it result in? Well, John the Baptist lost his head. Paul was stoned. He had was shipwrecked. He was bitten by poisonous snakes. And just all kinds of things went on. Not that we're going to have to go through all of that, but I can promise you it is coming for either later in our generation or the next generation, what they will be able to say or what they won't. So how would you encourage the youth as they go out? I told them that they could end up being persecuted if they're walking with Christ. If they simply want to be 
a witness for Christ. A set of these girls, they're twins, and they want to have a ranch where they're raising cattle. And I said, cattle? That may be an industry that is not very long-lived from this point if you're following the culture. And I said, you need to be prepared for this, that this could come your way. Or they make you, may make you give the cattle some vaccines and different things and then put that into the food supply. And it, it, all this is out there. If you just read, it depends on where you read, you'll see it. And so I, I told them, walk with Christ. Don't be surprised if it becomes difficult for you. And then I gave them an admonishment, a warning. I said, if you choose not to, God told us, Jesus told us in Matthew chapter 12, verse 30, that those who do not gather with me scatter. But if you're for me, you will follow me. If you're against me, you just do nothing. So the person who does nothing, who does not speak up, who does not go against the culture when it is wrong, that person is actually working against Christ. So I gave that admonition to them. I told them, follow Christ, don't stop, make sure you find a church. And they understand doctrine. I think over four years they got the doctrine down. They, they have that under their belts. And I think that they're going to be okay. I also told them uh, things like, and these were the girls I was addressing, do not marry outside the faith. I have seen so many people just struggle in life because they married somebody that was not of the same faith. I told them also to expand their Christian walks, like do some missions trips. Short term, you don't have to go to some far off South African country and live there the rest of your life. Just do some short term missions trip. Get some perspective. Understand what the rest of the world is like and how they live and how privileged we are here. And it will instill in them gratitude. I told them to be givers as well and to be gracious and take on the full armor of God and always be aware of the world in which they live, both culturally and spiritually. So I gave them that advice. And I'm sure I may drop one or two more things before they leave. But, and that's what we do with our children Normally, we instill these values in them, and as they go away, and they can come back and ask, them, ask us, why do you believe that? Where does it say that? And you can say, I'm glad you asked, because the Bible says it right here. In Bible, I have a biblical worldview, and this is why I hold the views that I hold. And that's what the Bereans were good at. They didn't want to go off and be wrong and they just decided we're going to do this right we're going to check the scriptures to make sure what Paul is saying is true now going on verse 12 many of the Jews believed as did a number of prominent Greek women and many Greek men verse 13 when the Jews in Thessalonica learned that Paul was preaching the word of God in Berea they went there too agitating the crowds and stirring them up the brothers immediately sent Paul to the coast but Silas and Timothy stayed at Berea. So we know that there were many Jews, prominent Greek men and women who believed, and that, that's something to be noted. It wasn't just for the lowly people there, the people that were educated, that understood, they were able to grasp the gospel once it was explained to them. And we don't want to be respecter of persons. Give the gospel to the poor, give the gospel to the wealthy. Whenever you have the opportunity, we're to open up our mouths and remember. These people had a predisposition of mind. 
Everyone has a predisposition of mind to want to know about God, but maybe not a predisposition of mind to believe in Jesus Christ. And that's why they need a little bit of convincing. That's where we have to do our homework. Be culturally relevant. Be biblically astute. Know what you're talking about. And practice. Every time I've gone out and done some witnessing, sometimes I've just completely blown it. Just like, oh, they, and I walk away, and that didn't work very well. And other times, they're like, wow, they want to accept Christ. That's, that's wonderful. But you have to step out. And when you make the mistakes, go, oh, God, I'm sorry, I wasn't a very good witness. And he goes, that's all right, just keep it up. And that's what we tell our children. Don't know how to ride a bike? Fell down? Oh, sorry. Now get back on the bike and start riding again. And you know this is true. So now Paul is taken off to Athens. Verse 15, the men who escorted Paul brought him to Athens and then left with instructions for Silas and Timothy to join as soon as possible. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So, or therefore... He reasoned in the synagogues with the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to dispute with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Now, babbler in the original language could be seed picker. That's what they call him. They call him a seed picker. Others remarked, he seemed to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. So who are these Epicureans and who are these Stoics? John Corson once had a message on the Epicureans and Stoics that I remember. And I don't know if you've ever had a delight like this. I grew up having the same delight. But you take a bread, a piece of bread. You put on the bread mayonnaise. You cut a banana, put the banana on the mayonnaise, the other slice of bread, you put peanut butter, and you put the peanut butter on there. And John Corson called that an Epicurean delight. You would eat that, oh, it's so tasty. I preferred Miracle Whip instead of Best Foods. I know some people had, but that's what we had. You eat that, it's just like, oh, it's so tasty, so tangy. It's, it's really a, a, a good little delight. Well, the Epicureans... They had a philosophy in seeking after pleasure, that that was the most fulfilling thing you could do in this life. And if you had a peanut butter, mayonnaise, and banana sandwich, that was one of those fulfillments. You could say, wow, that was a tremendous treat. But they would say, don't seek pleasure so much that it starts to become a problem for you. For instance, if you had too much alcohol, that could be a problem for you. But if you had just enough seeking pleasure, okay, that makes you feel happy and blessed and all of that. You're more conversational. Hopefully you're not an angry, drunk type of thing. But that was the view that the Epicureans had, whether it was with some type of drug or concoction or alcohol or sexual, all of those things, just pursue it enough where you're happy all the time and that will bring you the greatest fulfillment in your life so they aim to have a pleasant but smooth life that was their philosophy that's what they lived by and like for instance uh, possessions if you have too much stuff can it be a burden to you you know the the people that have all the toys i don't have all the toys i don't want all the toys problem a house is enough if you have a house, it's plenty to take care of. But if you add to that several vehicles, a boat, uh, 
RV, if you do that, sea dues. If you want to have all those things, you go right ahead. But it's going to be a problem because you have to fix everything all the time. And whether you have to repaint it or get another part or take it somewhere, it's just, it's a problem because you have to have a trailer for that and then you have to have a place to stay and do you have a toy hauler or does somebody, you meet them there and they bring, just problems, right? And so the Epicurean would say, well, have one toy at a time. Something like that. One possession. Well, <clears throat> with this, the, the idea of seeking after pleasure, getting what you want. Now, in our culture today, I don't, I don't know if you know this, but we are in the third wave of feminism. The first way was with the suffrage movement, where women would be able, the first part of the 20th century, where women would be able to vote. There was a lot of women who were against that. Because if you had the ability to vote, you also were required to fight in wars. And the women didn't want that. And so they said, no, we're not going to vote. But they imagined a way that you could vote, but not have to serve and go fight. And they did that. Of course, that's changing as we speak. And so that's the first wave of feminism. The second wave of feminism came in the 1960s. If you remember the bra burning, the equal pay, and I am woman, hear me roar, Rosie the River with an arm like this, you know, they, that would be one of their emblems. They, they wanted to have the equality with men and the equal rights amendment that was coming up. That was the second wave of feminism. Then there's the third wave where there's a focus on gender identity, equal pay for women. That's a whole ruse in itself if you do any study on that. Uh, and by the way, the equity in the workplace, you know, they say women need to make the same as men and women need to have the same job as men. How many bricklayers are women? How many pipe fitters are women? How many men that go on the high line power lines are women that just crawl along those power lines as there's 50,000 volts running through those power lines and they have a metal mesh uh, outfit on to keep from being completely fried up there? If you've seen those guys, how many of the women fly helicopters with huge chainsaw blades on them that just cut down these power lines? You know, how many women are miners? Well, what if we required 50% women to do those jobs as well? Because they want the other jobs. They want the doctors and the nurses and the lawyers and all of that. Well, let's make sure we transfer that all the way across the spectrum. Now, if we did that, there would be an uproar. No, you can't force somebody to do that. Well, they're trying. The third wave of feminism is trying to force society to bend to their will. And there's so many things with the biblical worldview that that goes against. What if there's no merit from the person who's supposed to be doing the job, that they, they're not qualified to do that job? Well, that, this is the idea of feminism, just seeking after what makes you happy and bling, brings pleasure to you. One of these things is uh, if you listen to, and I do on occasion, listen to the um, Internet influencers which are out there. There's a few I like to go to and listen and some of them are women that are as traditional as can be. And they come out and they tell these other women, and they're young. One of them is 23 years old. She comes out and she tells these other women, you guys need to stop sleeping around. And then they'll ask them, do you want the man to pay for the uh, meal on the first date? And they all go, of course. 
And, and then the, the woman will turn back and say, what are you talking about? You're a feminist, aren't you? Why don't you pay for the first date? You want this equal? And they all just kind of get quiet at that point. Do you want a man to open a door for you? Some of the militant ones say, no, I can do it myself. And others going, yes, I think he needs to respect me and take care of me and protect me. But you're a feminist, a third-way feminist. And so they're all discombobulated right now when they're confronted with this. And the same thing happens with how many men they sleep with. They want the same type of sexual freedom that has been afforded men, which is both immoral, sinful, but they want that same thing. And so they have what's called, quote, a body count. And on these podcasts, they'll ask the women, so what's your body count? I kid you not. It goes anywhere from five to a hundred that these women have been sleeping with because they think they have the freedom to do so and they think it'll bring them happiness. And the men that are on these podcasts, they'll turn around and say, I want to inform you something. Men are looking for youth and purity. And so then there's going to be a whole generation of women that aren't going to marry and aren't going to have kids because of their lifestyle. Now, these are cultural things that we need to speak out about because God says this is the way it's supposed to be. If we're silent, guess what's going to happen to our culture? It will go away. The biblical culture that we've maintained for a couple of hundred years will go away. But this is what the Epicurean would say, do. Follow your heart and what brings you pleasure. But then there's the Stoics. Now, when you think a Stoic, somebody who is a Stoic, you think of sleeves over the hands, coupled together, sitting back, all calm, not reacting to that which is around you. And you have become a sage with knowledge and wisdom throughout the centuries that is all in your mind. And you only open up your mouth when asked and you don't overreact. That's kind of the idea of a Stoic. But the Stoics, had, they had particular views in a bunch of different areas. One of them, was with the elements. Now, <clears throat> you know what the elements are? Earth, water, fire, and air, right? They had a fascination with these four things. And you think that this is something that is ancient. Have you ever heard of Avatar, the last airbender for kids? They watch that. And there's waterbenders and the airbender and the firebender. These are cartoons which are out there. You ever see a Bruce Willis's film, uh, The Fifth Element? They had fire, water, air, and earth, right? Then you have the band, Earth, Wind, and Fire. What happened to the water? There's a whole story behind that, but it's those four elements which are there. What about the new movie by Disney called Element? You see the fire and the water getting together, but they're not really compatible, and there's a whole woke message behind that what about the lion witch in the wardrobe you know no wait a second don't ruin it for me yeah the lion witch in the wardrobe you had the water uh, it says to the glistening eastern sea i give you queen lucy the valiant to earth to the great western wood king edmund the just for fire to the radiant southern sun queen susan the gentle and for air and to the clear northern sky i give you king peter the magnificent this philosophy is in everything, earth, wind, fire, water. It's, it's everywhere. This is the stoic philosophy, which they had. And that's what you need to pay attention to. And there's so much more to that, but I, I need to move on. Then there's this idea of logic. The stoics would focus on logic. It's where we get our syllogisms from. For instance, a syllogism, God created everything 
Evil is not a thing. Therefore, God did not create evil. That's how they would use logic. It came from them. We use that today in our philosophy, in our arguing and making the case or in an apologetic. But then there's also ethics. There are two things that they held to. Human happiness is fully in our power and virtue is the only good. And happiness is like, you don't overreact. If you had virtue, if you had one virtue, you had all the virtues. Like if you had a virtue of courage or if you had the virtue of joy, you would walk around and say, I have all the the, uh, virtues and I want to operate in those virtues. Let me ask you something. Who defines in our culture today virtue? Uh, I remember a president and I went to a school board meeting at the Grossmont Union School District when they were talking about some some things they shouldn't be involved in and one of the people who voted in the school board district as well as Obama said this it's the right thing to do have you heard that phrase how do you determine what's right to do our culture has flipped it what is good and what is right and what is something we need to act on it has completely changed from when we were growing up and even from the founding fathers and it is the culture that defines that so This is the stoic philosophy and ethics. You just define it as the culture defines it and you go with that and everything will be fine. And so these Epicureans and Stoics were around back then. We have their philosophies everywhere in our culture today and we need to speak up and say, that's not a good philosophy. That is not something that we should stick with. Now, there's so much more I could say about this, but... I'll probably wrap it up here. I got four minutes, three minutes. When Paul would go to these different cities, he would go to the synagogues. Once he went to the synagogues and they rejected him, then he said, okay, I'm going to go to the Greeks. I'm going to go to the pagans. I'm going to go to those who are not Jews. And he made a connection with each one of those places, whether it's the Jews or whether it's the Greeks. When we get to him going into the message about the Greeks, he looks at the statues the statues that they had everywhere. And in that city, they think there were thirty to 50,000 statues to these gods, which were there. And he came up to the one that was the unknown god in case they missed one. And Paul develops a message on that. And he even quotes their contemporary poets. So he's up on the culture. My encouragement to you is, as was last week, make sure you know the scripture. Make sure you know the culture. God wants us to open up our mouths. God wants us to be an influence. God wants us to lead people into the kingdom. And he is sending all of us. Now, it's not a warning. It's just an encouragement. Remember, if if we are for God, we are working for him. If we are against God, all we have to do is nothing. And so God wants to encourage us, I believe, through his word to be like Paul. Go to the places that are familiar Make an apology, not say you're sorry, but an apologetic, give a defense for the faith for them, lead them into the kingdom. If you are going outside of the places that are familiar, like going to Athens, so to speak, look for an inroad, look for something in their cultural view that you can tap to. One example of that, a Muslim. How would you witness to a Muslim? First thing you could find that you would have in common with a Muslim is Abraham. You would talk about Abraham. 
That's where you would start. And then God would give you wisdom how you should proceed from there. May God give you the patience, the endurance, the long-suffering to make an endeavor to get this information, get it into your heart to where you can just... In a, I can't think of another word, to regurgitate or to recall, to give to the person that they might believe and be encouraged in this life. Because remember, we're not working for this life like the Epicureans or the Stoics. We're working for the next life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Paul, his encouragement of going from place to place and finding a connection with the people. May you help us to seek out examples of this where we might learn, not just from your word, but from friends, family members, others, Lord. May they give us encouragement of what to say and how to handle our lives to be a witness. And we'll do this with the power of your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Please stand.